So how is everything up there? Yeah, it was all going good. Uh, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's nice outside, so it makes everything seem a lot better, right? You just yeah. start the day. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know I got a busy, busy schedule, so sorry for like putting in this in your schedule. It's all good. It's a it's, it's a pleasure to chat about um, all these topics. So uh, no problem at all. Cool. So first of all, I know you've been talking with Mark. Yeah. And. and He's kind of big deal here in Taiwan, so probably there's a lot of like strength coach, strength coach or performance coach know who you are. But still, can you like introduce yourself for the audience? Yeah, absolutely. So, and uh, obviously, me having this collaboration with Mark is is fantastic. He's just uh, he's an awesome academic and and coach. I'm really grateful to have uh, uh, to to be involved and, and working with him. Um, so I work at Middlesex University. I've been here for about 14 years. I'm pretty sure it's about that for, for quite a while. And uh, I started off looking after the, the MSc in strength conditioning. I actually put that program uh, together initially uh, and then looked after the, that program, the postgraduate programs that we run at the university. And the last few years, I've been looking after the uh, PhD programs, we call that research degrees coordinator. So that's principally been um, my role. So looking after the uh, postgraduate research students. Uh, and that's pretty much so where, where I am now, part of my role. I, um, I've, always, I've always coached, but I am an academic. I, uh, um, I, I, I will say that. Um, I've always coached, worked with different clubs, different teams. And so part of my role, I guess, has been as much to... Uh, to be an uh, an academic and understands the, the 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 science governing the practice or the coaching of SNC, I've always wanted to try and apply it myself to make sure that there's this carryover between what we teach in the class and what's actually done in the field. And I always get too bogged down in some of the more academic points. And um, of course, the other the other part of my role, so uh, uh, research coaching or consultancy is, has been uh, in the teaching as well. So, yeah, those sort of three areas cover broadly what, what I do. That's cool. So, is Taylor your student too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Ty, well, he's a, he, his uh, name is uh, in Tyler, is what he says for, uh, oh. for English. Yeah, he's he's our student. He's super as well. Obviously, introduced through Mark over over in Taiwan. He's doing he's doing fantastic uh, work, and always trying to keep him on after he finishes his PhD. So uh, yeah, he is he is indeed. I, I did a podcast with him, but it's in Mandarin. Okay, cool, cool. <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. He's incredible, really. Like, I'm actually quite in awe of people that, you know, he, he had good English before he came. It was okay, but his English now, to be able to write papers, to write a thesis, he's had his work published, to be able to do that in another language, and one that really you've only grasped in the last few years, is just just tremendous, uh, to, to say the least. So, good to uh, hear that, good to hear that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, 
I, I saw the paper about like a uh, change of direction and I really liked it. So today I kind of want to talk about the these things in the paper, okay? Mm -hmm. And I noticed like Tyler is doing some like video stuff in that, right? Yeah, he is. <laughs> he is, he is. <laughs> no, cool. technically, yeah, technically he's, he can put out some good shapes when it comes to sprinting and changing direction. So yeah, he's in there. He's in there for sure. Cool, cool, cool. So first of all, like what is the difference between agility and change of direction? Yes, that's a great place to start. I guess if, if we if we start, I'll, I'll give a real quick snapshot definition in, in just a moment. But what the paper is about, and I, I guess uh, coaching philosophy, the the idea behind it is that every nearly every athlete or team sport athlete, a racket sport athlete, the end goal is is to be agile, is to, is to demonstrate agility. And so when we think about that as an SNC coach, we, we've not finished our work because they can they can squat, you know, lots of weight, you know, double body body. Although they're, they're these are great benchmarks. And the same, I do more and more work with physios. You know, the end point of their work is not that they're pain free or they can demonstrate a certain amount of strength from one exercise. You know, hit this benchmark is that the athlete is agile. That's what they all demonstrate: football, basketball, tennis, right? So by that, I mean that this athlete can stand in the middle of the field or on the court and can scan the environment, pick up these relevant cues and then get all of those cues, which include where the opponents are, where their teammates are, the alignment of their body, where the ball is, and almost pass it through this huge um, pattern recognition database that they've developed over the years. And out the other end spits this, this um, forecast, this prediction, this probability of what's about to happen and therefore what they should do. So then once they've decided what they do, they've put it through that, that cognitive system, they then act. And that part of acting is then they have to align their body uh, accordingly and then produce force and produce force rapidly. So you can see by that, that definition, there's this agility has these, these two components. One is a cognitive component where they have to scan and make a prediction uh, based on this database of, of pattern recognition. And then the second part is the physical component. And that physical component is technical, firstly, align your body, given what it is you've just decided to do, and then produce force and produce force quickly. So agility, it uh, encompasses that cognitive component uh, that is so fundamental to being a good athlete. And the change of direction part is the technical bit that underpins that and the ability of the athlete to then express force. Cool, love it. So uh, kind of want to talk a little about, about like change of direction first. And in the paper, you mentioned like, cutting and crossover or shuffle step that kind of stuff yeah. so uh can you like tell like walk us through like what is cut and what is like crossover and shuffle yeah no but i mean i guess there are 
and I think we make the point clear, at least I hope we do, there are tons of different ways to uh, to change direction and to demonstrate um, good turning mechanics, right? So we're gonna, gonna focus on a couple. And I like the I like the shuffle, the cut, the crossover, because I think it's I think it's a difficult one, you know, because this movement is gearing you up to make a 180 degree turn. Okay. And when we talk about um, changing direction, okay, and it's a good work, I'll piggyback off the work of Tom DeSantos here that's done some, that, that puts out some great research that talks about the anything within about 60 degrees is, you know, we can maintain velocity, all right? So we, we run at a cone and we just, we turn, but we maintain that velocity. Anything outside of that, now we have to start to decelerate, okay? And so I also have to jump on uh, uh, Damien Harper and his research, and I'll combine those two and, and Rich Clark whenever I talk about it, okay? Those, those sort of three guys are fantastic. So by doing this movement here, what we're doing with the, the shuffle and cut is trying to slowly piece together this puzzle as how we can seamlessly do a, a 505, a 180 degree turn. And these are just steps in the process to about a run at a point, decelerate down to zero, you know, throw on the brakes, realign your body, throw your other foot, your lateral foot over, and make that change um, in direction. And so that's why really we, we focus so, so heavily on those movements. And we accepting then that <clears throat> with, those, with those movements, we're encompassing, I think, a lot of the physical characteristics that require an athlete to be, to be agile. It's uh, accelerated forces, it's decelerated forces as well. Um, and then it's that realignment given this high load that you're putting the body through, can you still realign appropriately uh, as well? So that's why those were the focus um, of the paper. So uh, can you like walk us through how to like uh, gradually teach your athlete these skills? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, difficult to do verbally, you know, the, the pictures or video, um, is what is what paints the picture but I think you know, you know okay if we, if we start from the sort of the beginning and we look at those, those movements what we want to do is about accelerate okay we want to accelerate into the into the turn um and I like the idea again jumping on the work of or some of the sayings of the, the guys I mentioned before is that the body won't speed up what it can't slow down Okay, so your acceleration into that is based on your capacity to to decelerate as well. You know, there's a ton of force going in into that into that turn. So we have our acceleration. We come out. Um, we come out of that 45 degree angle or whatever that angle is. But by saying 45 degree angle or you know some of the terms and think about what uh, Nick Winkleman says about you know coming out like a fighter jet. So we come out, we come out sharp angle, all right? And we stay low to the floor. We have these, our, our foot contacts are staying low as well so that we can be very responsive to the environment as well as more quickly applying force. And then we have to almost, you know, if acceleration is being off balance and falling forwards, we then have to do the total opposite to break. We then have to come up and then, then sit back, uh, sit back, 
uh, and get and whilst doing that with all of that force start to gradually realign our body so we're going on head on and we then have to turn and then i think that when we've got our inside foot the more more weight we can put on our inside foot the easier it allows us to arrest that momentum and come back the other way if too much is on the outside foot it's very hard to control that amount of force so as the paper talks about this inside step being quite key to it um but also other people will do that 180 turn in a different way. There's, there's nothing wrong with running and almost jumping into the turn. They all end up with the same, the same thing, right? So the technique to do it, you kind of play with it a little bit with the athlete. Like try doing it this methods and now, you know, try jumping into it. And I think in terms of getting an athlete to it, the less you can say about those different coaching uh, points, the more intuitive it, be, it can become, the better the performance. So when you're trying to teach someone agility or change of direction, I think it starts before you, you got there. And we talk about in the paper about plyometrics as well. There's so many drills and plyometrics that just look exactly like the movement we're trying to do. But if you get, you know, and, and as an example, if we overcoach it, we then talk the body out of this natural method this natural system it has to land in the appropriate position if you tell someone to stand upright and just fall to the side like this there's no way of doing it without getting a crossover all right otherwise you face plant okay so we already have this system built in we need to make sure we don't coach to the point where we make the body think oh actually is there another way of doing it no we have this inbuilt system to do it there's no way of falling to the side without that crossover step happening so things like agility also teach um, plyometrics sorry when we're going laterally also teach us to cut sharp i mean if you're if you're trying to uh, make your way laterally across a bunch of hurdles as you move down you have to do it as though you're skiing right and you have to hit these same shapes they're all perfect so I think in terms of the, the, the technical model that we need to do it is if there's enough work done beforehand and we don't overcomplicate it, they're going to hit some, some pretty good shapes um, initially. I think the other bit that I will add into it where we've made it harder for ourselves is we're introducing a line, a target that they must stop at. And what we will instinctively do, unfortunately, is reach out for the line, all right? Everyone reaches out for that line under the, the, the assumption that the quicker that they can touch that line, the quicker they'll complete the task. But what ends up happening is rather if there's, if there's a, their feet, rather than landing at that line and looking like that, this inside leg ends up over here and this, this outside leg to try and touch the line ends up at this angle. So now actually biomechanically, your opportunity to produce force position is limited because Really, if, when you produce force, you kind of just go up. Whereas if both feet land like this, biomechanically, performance point of view, you push across. So it's changing the mindset. It's not about your outside leg touching the line, if you're going to go for it. It's your inside leg. And then you end up with a much smaller um, uh, base of support. You're much more off balance. So if your base of support is, like, is, is really narrow, your center of mass stays your belly button, lands outside of it, and you end up falling in exactly the way you want to go and that crossover step happens so it's more about manipulating the task the things you do beforehand that set up agility i think rather than going right 
What's the first thing we should do with our athlete? Agility. I think if you do the work beforehand, you don't have to overcomplicate it, and then you end up in much better positions. So it's like uh, agility, like you, you just basically like cross, like uh, you teach some of the agility and change of direction, agility, change of direction. Am I understanding right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so the, the problem, we would, we show this progression, right? In the paper, and it's a progression that, that I think uh, underpins a, a particular coaching philosophy or an example of one. All right, there's lots of different ways to do this, and this is one example. So it it makes sense to teach the person first how to do these skills in a closed environment, you know, very um, very pre-planned, so they know what to do, and then you introduce the agility component finally, where they have to then apply those skills. Uh, within the context to evade or catch um, someone or, um, or something, you know, ball uh, may be more relevant or uh, an, an additional example. So, yeah, I think we go, it, we have to teach them those components. But uh, like I said before, I think that you need the plyometrics. You, you need everything that plyometrics gives you, including the shape, including expression force, to, to be able to demonstrate some of the technical models demanded by various turning mechanics. And then, then you do the agility. But, you know, this thing goes the whole way back. If you want to be good at agility, it's not just a case of, okay, let's just go and look at some, some technical models. There's only so much you can coach in any domain and expect someone to get big improvements. Sometimes it's broken down because there's just a lack of physical capacity or ability to hit certain shapes. Um, and so at those point, the answer is actually, let's go back. And so, you know, again, because you made reference to the paper or I'll continue here, you know, if you want someone to be good um, at agility, of course, first of all, let's give them good change of direction mechanics, which are broken down into acceleration, deceleration, and, and any number of methods for, for turning. Um, but what underpins then is, is um, plyometrics, okay? Because it's expression of fast, rapid, uh, the expression of force rapidly. There's also um, in and about co-contraction, pre-muscle activation. You know, when you go into those turns, you need all of that before you make that footstep. So the body is braced and able to already produce force to take you where you want to go. Well, that's what plyometrics is, is underpinned by. You get that antagonic, antagonistic co-contraction, that stiffness, that pre-activation. So it, by missing that, it's you're, you're missing a trick. And Look, I'll, I'll go back further again and say, but if you want to be good at plyometrics, you need to be powerful, the ability to reduce force at high velocity. And if you want power, you need to be strong. And if you want to be strong, you need good muscle symmetry, be in balance. And if you want that, again, you want something to do with you want reasonable mobility. So the, that's the end point. Agility is the end point. And the answer to being good at it doesn't always just lie here. Sometimes it lies all the way back over here. Um, and at certain points in the season um, and through life, they lose these bits. So if you just keep focusing here, your ability to coach, uh, you think, oh, you know, why is this not working? Why are they not hitting these shapes? Actually, something's falling back here. You can't coach your way out of every single uh, problem. You have to go back and give the physical capacity, uh, capacity to the athlete, the ability to move as well. And that solves the problem further up. But yeah, that's the... That's the direction we're moving. And I think the last point I should say on it, so, so used to sort of defending uh, certain approaches, is that 
it's not you have to do this, then you can only do this and you can only do this. What we're talking about here is an emphasis. Emphasize this area of your training, but of course do all the other bits. You know, it's illogical to not do it that way. Otherwise, for example, if you only did strength and did no power work, you'd sort of get to the power bit and go, right, how do I do this? And then learning it, you'll you'll drop it, you're you're losing the strength that underpins it. And when you're doing power, if you're not strong, your power drops. So you have to do strength during the power phase. It's not the main emphasis. You know, you're not trying to get stronger. You're just trying not to lose what you'd already got. So still do strength, so on and so forth. So we can still train the whole continuum, but but it's logical to emphasize. And that's periodization, right? Yeah, well. cool, man. Love it. So since you brought up like plyometric, and I know in your paper, you mention like fast stretch shortening cycle and slow stretch shortening cycle right can you like talk to us like what is like fast eccentric and what is slow eccentric what's the difference and how to train these elements yeah yeah absolutely so i i guess look we like to put lines in the sand you know so this is fast this is slow and it doesn't always fit but actually it does provide a nice framework to stop us overthinking the intricacies of every academic paper that's come out goes well actually it's part of the mechanism you must do this and actually it's it, I, I don't feel that is ever that complicated you know and it's okay to group but appreciating that we have put a line in the sand here so what we talk about is um, although they incorporate the stretch shortening cycle, depends on the definition. I don't get overly caught up in the definitions. I'm not emotionally attached to it or anything. But, you know, we might say plyometrics and fast stretch shortening cycles jumping over hurdles, okay, where it's about land and go, land and go. Okay, so if, if it's a short stretch shortening cycle, the ground contact time is really small. Okay, and if the ground contact time is really small, therefore, the, the angular displacement or the, the, the angles that the bodies have moved through must be much shorter, right? You're not going to get big flexion at the knees and at the hips. So everything looks a lot stiffer. There's less movement at the different joint knee joints. So that would be fast, plyometric. And what's that suitable for? Well, what sport has short ground contact times? All right, so sprinting, changing direction, it all makes sense that that feeds that um, perfect, perfectly. And you talk about long stretch shortening cycles now we're more talking about um counter movement jumps uh any any sort of jump to a box jumping forward it's not about this landing part it's not about landing and going it's just about this takeoff minimizing that take but you're still trying to minimize it right so although it, we're talking about counter movement jump whether you're holding a bar or jump to a box these are perfect examples it's not, it doesn't work now if it takes you less than 250 milliseconds. In fact, you're still trying to get the time as short as possible. But the task looks different because there's greater flexion at the, 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 the joints. But they're all dictated by how long you spend on the ground, really. So that makes it then more relevant for, let's say, volleyball jumping to get a, make a spike or um, acceleration when you're pushing out the blocks and you spend a little bit longer on the blocks. Um, and I, I think that they're all important. I think that they're all important to train all of them. And what's interesting, actually, is you get certain questions like, let's say fast stretch. So let's say cycling as an example, right, where they're pushing. So should they just do slower or, or longer stretch shortening cycles where they're just pushing, all right? And should they therefore not do the fast stretch shortening cycle where it's over hurdles? And I think it comes back to the same thing for me is that 
Look, these are all different ways to stimulate an adaptation, all right? The fast-shaped shortening cycle is a phenomenal way to get breaking strength, propulsive strength, to get loads through the body that are just so high. So, of course, they should. But, you know, you might, you know, the, the volume of training dedicated to that might be less for them than for another athlete that more heavily depends on, on a mechanism that, that resembles that. So I think whether a, a particular task looks like something that's done within the sport is one thing that shape, is, is what shapes the volume of, of a particular mode of exercise. But everyone should probably do everything. Now, I still do agility with a, you know, with a cyclist with, with, because it's another way to stimulate what would otherwise be untrained muscles that could end up being the problem down the line. You know, it's, it's the, the muscles, the, the body wants to work it, it, you know, relatively close to symmetry, not, not, nothing's perfectly symmetrical, um, but the body wants to work roughly in symmetry so that it feels safe to express force and not hold back. And so these are different ways to generate that, that safety and the, the body's ability to go, let's go at it, let's give you everything I've got, I feel perfectly safe. Um, and I'd say the other point on that is where you're getting more load you know, the same with strength training is we always focus on the neuromuscular aspect, right? You're stronger, more powerful. But what about the connective tissues? You know, what about the adaptations that happen there that make you more robust to the load? And, and there's great adaptations that you see there that combine with neuromuscular strength to make you more robust, to give you the capacity to express force, to give the body the, the safety, the subconscious early um it's subconsciously scanning going can we do this we can do this let's go so i think uh yeah kind of a long uh, a long answer there great 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 i love it so uh next thing is uh you mentioned a lot of, like turn in your paper and in our conversation today and there's also like uh when i talked to like lee taff before He's, he got like seven movement pattern, like, uh, I can't really remember that, but it's like a uh, jump and crossover and like shuffle. And there's one thing common, like he mentioned it, like hip turn. And you also mentioned like turn in your paper and in our conversation today. So why is like, uh, you need to like, mention this like turn instead of like just a uh, crossover or like a uh, shuffle um why do we focus? I, I think maybe we focused on them to provide an example but there's lots of different ways to do it i guess maybe it's not that I, I i felt that they're the most important ones it was more that i I try to set a scenario where I think that's one of the hardest ones. Let me show a, a journey to one of the hardest turns, which also incorporates a big deceleration component, you know, going to zero. Um, but, you know, a while back, uh, and, and, you know, it depends on your, on your biases into agility and that. And, you know, some people will say, well, look, we need to, if you're going to do, if that, if they accept that is the end point, we need to be looking at an athlete and, and testing uh, agility or, or change of direction sorry was it would keep the change of direction for now and, and testing that component across you know 45 60 90 180 you know but 
Um, I think that there's a lot of carryover and, 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 and crossover from different um, drills. I mean, we did paper a long time ago and we looked at a bunch of different um, agility drills at, or change of direction drills, sorry. Um, and if you were good at one, you were pretty good at the other. And so, you know, by, by having a, by, by focusing on a few, and also, I mean, obviously you should, you should train, you know, the, the full spectrum, but, you know, if, if you spend time on some of the harder ones, for example, there's still going to be crossover, whatever it is your approach, whatever your bias is, it's still going to be crossover. It's not like if you, if you can't do the, uh, the, the shuffle or the cart, you can't, you know, you're going to be no good at any of the other ones. So in the same way as when someone um, squats, right? So if you get strong at a, a deadlift, I guarantee you're still getting stronger at the back squat or you're still getting stronger. So I, I think when you come into, you know, which one should we do, which I think you should do all of them, maybe, of course, um, but we only focus on these ones because they were particularly hard, and so that so there's going to be a great transfer. You know, if we just did one within 60 degrees, it's harder then to make the inference that the transfer from one you don't have to decelerate is uh, still applicable to what to um, one that you do have to decelerate, right? So because we included most components within it, the transfer uh, that you should then get to other modes should be quite high, really. Um, yeah, so that was the reason why we focused on them. But of course, do all of them. Um, but yeah, they, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. So uh, when 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 we when we train our athlete, is there like, do you think we should put like uh, train different like movement in like different days, like maybe crossover on let's say Tuesday and uh shuffle or like open step on friday or should we put it together yeah oh i think that's a good question i think I, I don't think that there's an answer that necessarily means you're going to get the best you know if you do this route this is going to lead to the best i think it always comes down to how you manage to incorporate it so i think for example having a an agility curriculum if you like makes sense but how much time can you realistically spend on an agility session every time you work with them well that kind of depends you're not going to be able to spend that much time with each athlete doing agility and something we're working on at the moment is the idea of embedding this curriculum within a warm-up for example and so it would be snippets all right so i, I think you would do snippets of five minutes and you would have greater frequency of those so I, as a, on a personal level, I see the value in doing five minutes, say four times a week, rather than one 20 minute session. Okay, so it's constant stimulation. And then it would make sense to just gradually build that up. So for me, the, it would make sense to be focusing on a shuffle first before a cut, before a crossover, right? Because one feeds into the other. So, but if you had to do them on the same, day that's fine but make sure one person can tick the milestone of of the preceding quality before moving on to the next you know if you can't hit the shapes of the of of a movement that's embedded within a more complex task then surely 
it's not going to be as effective. So I think it's more progresses progress as you as you want, put it all in the same session as long as you're, you're confident that they can do all the preceding steps before they got there. Um, so that would certainly be more the approach I would, I would consider taking. Cool, love it. Uh, so can you walk us through like one of your sessions with the athlete when you train your athlete from like warm up and how you probably like what kind of drill you're gonna do and then the main workout? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think so. It goes one of one of two ways, really. I think that so in general, of, of course, we have the we have the warm up. All right. But what we would try to do is put this curriculum within the warm up. So the warm up might end up with something that works towards the development of the athlete. Right. So as an example, uh, after the standard, after a standard warm up, we do some plyometric drills and then we'll do some some agility drills because the plyometrics, you know, potentiates and primes the body and the movement for agility. And I'm working with Mark as well, actually, um, to, to, to try to pair those together. So as an example, if you're doing a, um, a crossover movement, it makes sense that the agility stuff is, uh, the plyometric stuff is moving uh, diagonally across. If you're doing top speed stuff, for example, it makes, makes sense to do more single leg work over hurdles. Um, if you're doing acceleration work, uh, it makes sense that it's more about standing broad jumps, bigger angles, and then you work into the acceleration. So then you have this warm-up that the body's prepared for for the for the task. It's primed, but also it's learned. You know, it's it's been a good, really good, effective use of time, and the athlete is better for it as opposed to a tick box, box exercise. Then from there we can go into the strength and power work. Um, and you know, then we're into the focus. So whether you're doing your, uh, your squats and then your accessory work. And then when we do that, we always try to make sure there's that ratio one-to-one. -one. If we can do squats, we've got to do the, the hamstrings and same for the upper, uh, for the upper body. We're trying to do the one-to-one. -one. Now what we're looking at at the moment, and it, equally what we would do if, if not within the warm-up, is I like the idea of doing what would be um, a contrast training, so your strength, Fly, strength, fly. Now, I don't do it. I don't do it because there's this potentiation, this this paper effect. All right, there might be. But I do it because it's time efficient. You know, if we give someone, if we train someone for strength, you know, we can't just sit around for five minutes now. You know, and, and make and have a chat as nice as that is. Actually, if we use that rest period to put a plyometric drill in into it between the sets we double up on the amount of volume and the amount of work that we can do within that period of time, you know, because they're different skills. Not only, not only should we not see a detriment to performance, um, we might even see a potentiation, but it's not, it's not about that. It's about doubling up into the work uh, the amount of work that we can do with an athlete within, you know, if we're only sitting for two hours, uh, sorry, one hour twice a week, uh, maybe three times a week, we need to be economical with what we do within that time if we've got to cover that much. But so whether you do that as a contrast, you do it as a warm up, really depends on the setup with the athlete. Some athletes will have on field, and some will have separate gym, and some you have to combine them together. 
So if it's on field, you can just use have the warm up curriculum, you know, warm them up, have the plyos into the agility, and then you have your strength work. Um, if it's all done in the gym, then you might want to do your. Um, uh, you could either do it as contrast, or you can again do it as the um, the regular warm up. But what you mix might be upper body or, or or lower body, just so that you fit more work in the same amount of time. Get it, get it. So that's like kind of like all the question I have for the paper. So uh, if there's like coaches are interested in what we're talking about today, where can they reach out to you and where can they find the paper? Yeah, if you just go on to, uh, I mean, the paper's on strength and conditioning journal, but the uh, pre you know, the preprints and, and things that everyone can access is on uh, ResearchGate and all the videos are on YouTube as well. So my ResearchGate would be uh, Anthony Turner UK. I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, yeah. And my YouTube is the same, Anthony Turner UK. And from there, you know, you can get access to the to the papers, to the videos. And the paper's got a QR code, so you can read along and, um, and then watch yeah. the video. Which is, yeah. it's, it's harder to explain it in text as it yeah. is. <laughs> Get it. So also you can see Tyler. So you can see Tyler. Yeah, you can see Tyler trying to hit those shapes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So is there like any future, any project you've been working on right now? Um, so I think the projects so I told you with, trying to look at this warm-up to embed a curriculum in and around that within there. It will be a little while before that that comes out. Some some great people part of that. Mark being uh, integral to that as well. Um, then we've got different, then we've got students doing different PhD projects. And I just spoke about the contrast, complex, all those different varieties of ways of putting a program together. We've got a PhD student looking at that, James Marshall, and he's going to, try and see what's the most effective way, including from clusters. You know, what, one part of it is improving performance. The other part is it being economical. What's the best way of, of putting this all together? Um, other, you know, we, we're moving with my, my colleague, Chris Bishop, moving into some, some research within, within golf. He's doing some, some great stuff there. We've got more of in physio and, uh, and re, oh, I say rehab, I, think, I guess loosely, but with, um, Paul Reed, Luca Mastrani, we're looking at re return to play, but you now this return to play again with the endpoint of being agile as opposed to you can hit some benchmarks. So return to play is about hitting benchmarks across a variety of different movements, not just that you're strong like this, are you strong moving side to side uh, and so on. So yeah, um, yeah, there's a ton of different a ton of different projects going on uh, at any one time, I think, but. Uh, yeah, there's some some we've got going on. Obviously, I, I had some research in, uh, in in fencing and managing to carry that on as well with a colleague, John Cree. So, um, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's quite a few different bits, quite a dip cool. uh, and mix as well. Cool. So ne probably next time we talk, we could talk about, like, uh, return to play uh, and contrast training. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, but this return to play, um, uh, you know, Luca and Paul, and uh, you know, they're they're the real powerhouses. But uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, last last thing before I let you go. Okay, 
So, uh, do you have like any suggestion or like advice for the young coaches out there who want to like really get the chance to train athlete? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I do, and uh, you know, take this advice with an obvious bias that I have. Okay, which I'm declaring from the start is that I think to work working with um, there's always uh, an interview process or as a head of performance or or so on, and I I I think that as well as the obvious things like them wanting to demonstrate you have experience of coaching athletes. Personally, I think that if you can also demonstrate that you can research and solve problems and, and find answers and um, articulate that information in a way that can be understood by players and coaches, then that puts you in a greater position. Equally, if you research, it means you're open to other possibilities. It means you're not stuck in one way of thinking by the virtue of research and you're trying to solve problems and this is a, a continually changing environment. So I would say, put my own bias on it, is of course demonstrate your coaching ability to those athletes, but demonstrate your research ability as well. Demonstrate that you can solve problems and that you're open-minded to things changing and different solutions as well. Oh, I love our con conversation today. I really love it. <laughs> thanks for the opportunity to, to chat it through it's been cool it's been very good great i know we got a busy schedule so i'm gonna let you go okay thank cool. you very, very much um